0: Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. A lot to do today, a um, lot to cover. So uh, chapter 13, so Jesus has been in the temple. It's Tuesday last week of his life. He's been teaching to the, uh, in the temple courts. The religious leaders have tried to catch him in his words. They've tried to undermine him. he's handled both all of those situations very well. He's now leaving the temple, and and we're going to look today at his final verdict on the temple. So we'll start right there in chapter 13, just the first few verses, and then we'll pause. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? So Jesus is leaving the temple and many people see that as more than just a physical description but symbolic of him. It's a, it's a final rejection of the temple and everything that's happening there. The disciples are impressed. It's a magnificent building. It's, a, it's incredible, and they're, they're impressed. There's a historian named Josephus, and he said the, the foundation stones are 37 feet long and 12 feet high and 18 feet deep. And it's just a massive building, incredibly impressive. And the disciples, at least one of them, is, says something to Jesus, and he makes this shocking statement. All of that stuff, it's coming down. Every one of those impressive rocks that's really, really big, they're all going to be torn down. And again, for us, all we've ever known is life without the temple. It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman army. So we don't know anything about it. It's, that's not a big deal to us. Our, our relating to God is all based on the work of Jesus on the cross. It's very difficult for us to put ourselves in the mind of one of these disciples and for them to hear that. I mean, that, the temple, it was, it was the center of their national identity It was the place of worship. It was where God was said to dwell on the earth. I mean, everything that it meant to be a Jew was wrapped up in that temple in Jerusalem. And this guy who you believe is gonna be the Messiah, the one who's come to deliver you and your people is saying, it's all coming down. It would be if if you were in Washington DC with somebody who you respected and, and you were talking about the White House and they say, yeah, it's all coming down. Like think about what would have to happen in our country for the White House to be leveled. Not just for the, all of the things that would have to happen for that building to no longer be there. That's what, that's what they're hearing. It's not just about the physical pulling down of a structure, it's what, what has happened to our nation if that thing is no longer here? And then I think even, and what does it mean for you to be the, the Messiah? If that, what's God doing? If that's not part of our future, anymore. Again, for us, we can look back and we can put the pieces together in advance. It's very difficult for them to get their mind right. So understandably, justifiably, they say, you got to tell it, like, when is this going to happen again? If it's something in their minds, that cataclysmic that the temple is going to be destroyed, they want to know when, what are going to be the signs that let us know that time is approaching so we can be ready. And then the rest of chapter 13, it's the longest sermon in Mark, is Jesus' response. And to be, uh, it's not super helpful for us. It's the most confusing chapter in Mark. There's three major ways you can understand chapter 13. You can see Jesus as just answering the question, when is the temple going to be destroyed? So it's all past. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and it's exactly what he said. Every, it got leveled. It got burned, and they pulled all the rocks down and it's never been rebuilt. And you can say, well, everything in chapter 13 is Jesus telling them about that. When the disciples hear it, it's 40 years in their future. When Mark's congregation hears it, it's probably 10 years in their future. For us, it's 2,000 years in our past. So that's one, one option. Another option is to say, Jesus doesn't answer their question really at all. He moves past it, and he's just talking about his return. The second coming, that's what he's referring to. So those are the two extremes in the middle is he's talking about both. And that's what I think he's doing. I think he's talking about both and they're blended together. He's talking both about the destruction of the temple and his return. And you may say, what's, what's the connection between those two events? How could he put those two things together? Both the destruction of the temple and Jesus's return, his second coming signal monumental shifts in the way God is dealing with his people. The, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, is, it's the final step in a rejection that's already begun. We've already seen it. When Jesus calls the temple a, a den of robbers, when he overturns the tables of the money changers, when he drives out the buyers and sellers, when he equates the temple to a fig tree that has leaves but no fruit, lots of activity but no life, and he curses the fig tree and it dies. That's, that's all a picture of what's happening in the temple. In the next couple of days, Jesus is going to say, I'm instituting a new covenant, which makes the first covenant, the old covenant, centered in the temple, obsolete. When Jesus dies, a curtain in between the holy place and the most holy place is torn in two, signaling that there's no barrier between us and God anymore. Again, for us, all of that is old news. But it's, a, it's a significant, it's difficult to overstate how massive the shift is from old covenant to new covenant. The temple is now obsolete in its destruction in 70 AD. It's just a final step in a rejection that's beginning already in Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12. And Jesus' second coming is just as seismic. When he returns, the opportunity to respond to him will be done. He's coming back to judge the world. He's going to judge the wicked who've rejected him. He's going to save and reward the righteous who've, who are following him. He's going to cleanse the the earth of everything that opposes him. He's going to establish his kingdom fully and finally here on earth as it is in heaven. Again, we can't overstate how significant that shift is. So Jesus is holding together these two, again, massive shifts in how God deals with his people from the old covenant to the new covenant, and then from Jesus' first coming, which instituted the new covenant, to his second coming which will then institute what's called the age to come. So here's his answer. We'll do our best that you don't have to agree with me. You, you can think what you want. You can see it all as past, all as future. I'm going to approach it as both best I can. Jesus said to them, so here's his answer to when are these things going to happen. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. "'Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. "'There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. "'These are the beginning of birth pains. "'You must be on your guard. "'You'll be handed over to the local councils "'and flogged in the synagogues. "'On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings "'as witnesses to them, "'and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. "'Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, "'don't worry beforehand about what to say. "'Just say whatever is given you at the time, "'for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit.'" Brother will betray brother to death and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom He has chosen, He has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Messiah, or Look, there He is, don't believe it. For false Messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Got it? Yeah. (laughs) So Jesus begins in verses 5 to 13 are, they're not signs. So first he said, they, they, the disciples want signs. How do we know? When is this going to happen? Give us a, for us, like give us the date on the calendar. And what are the signs? Like, how are we going to know that it's, it's approaching? And the first thing Jesus says is here's some things that are not signs. He calls them birth pains, a birth pain in this understanding, it's, it's a time of distress or suffering that it precedes something new happening, just like birth pains for um, an expectant mother. Like there's, it's uncomfortable, difficult time. It indicates something new is happened. We don't know exactly when the baby's coming, but it's at some point in the future. And then Jesus lists all these things that are not signs of the end. They're just the result of living in a fallen world where there's two kingdoms that are hostile to one another, two kingdoms that are fighting, a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. He says there'll be false messiahs, people who are going to say that they're the messiah. Don't, don't be deceived by them. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be natural disasters, earthquakes and, and famines. You're going to be persecuted, but don't worry about it because the gospel is going to be advancing. All of those things have been happening from the time Jesus says it until now. That's nothing new. Those are not signs of the end. Those are the things that a lot of people look at. They look at the headlines in the paper and try to draw a timeline to say, when is Jesus returning? And he explicitly says, don't do that. Those events, all those things indicate is you live in a fallen world with two kingdoms that are fighting against each other. Don't be deceived by any of that stuff at all. If you read the book of Acts, it's on the slide behind me. Everything that is listed there, except for wars and earthquakes, you see in the book of Acts, you can look up those scriptures. And if you read a secular historian from the same time period, they'll tell you about wars and earthquakes. There was both. In the 30 years between when Jesus says this, somewhere around 30 AD until 70 AD, when the temple is destroyed, all of these things are happening. And you can take any 40-year period since then, and you're gonna find all of these things. They're they're, they're not signs of anything. They're just the beginnings of birth pains. They indicate, hey, this is a difficult time. Something new is coming, but they don't say when that new thing actually will come. Then he does give a sign. And honestly, it's about the most unhelpful one out there. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, and then Mark says, let the reader understand. And we're like, yes, yes. Let us, help us understand. You wrote the book. Help us understand. And he doesn't explain it. It's rooted in Daniel. That's where that phrase first appears. Three places in Daniel. You'll see it on the screen behind me. So whatever the abomination that causes desolation, whatever it is, it's consistent with with that label that Daniel used. That's what the disciples, that's what Mark's congregation, that's what they would have heard. Oh, we know that. From Daniel. And Daniel, the first six books are super, or the first six chapters are super inspiring, and the last six are a dumpster fire. You can't figure out what's going on in that book. So it's not, read it and see. The second half of that book, so difficult to understand what exactly is going on. But he, that's where he talks about this abomination that causes desolation. An abomination is something revolting to God that causes desolation that he's talking about in the temple. It, 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 it makes it where the temple's not usable anymore. And so when the disciples heard that, they're thinking of Daniel, and they're also thinking of something that happened two year, 200 years before they're hearing from Jesus. There's a guy, Syrian general, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he, he uh he entered the temple and he erected an altar to Zeus, and he sacrificed a pig, and the Jews didn't use the temple for three years until they could get rid of him and cleanse it. It's a fulfillment of that word in Daniel. And so when Jesus is talking about this abomination that causes desolation, he's referring to something like that. When Titus, who's the Roman commander, when he leads the Roman troops against the when he, they, it's a siege honestly against Jerusalem, they have these flags and their flags, their banners are considered idolatrous by the Jewish people and they enter the temple and then Titus destroys the whole thing. Hadn't been rebuilt. Looking forward, 2 Thessalonians talks about a man of lawlessness. That's another way of talking about the Antichrist. We don't know who he is. But you see a description that's similar there on the screen behind me to the abomination that causes desolation. And Jesus says when that guy comes... Y'all need to get out of Dodge. You need, it's going to make, be really bad for God's people when that guy sets up shop. And you can go back and read history when Antiochus Epiphanes, when he was in charge of the Jerusalem area, it was horrible for the Jews. Persecuted them mercilessly. When the, you can read the, about the Jewish Roman War from 66 to 70 AD, terrible for the Jewish people. You can read, we don't have time to do this, but you can connect a lot of dots between Mark 13 and then Matthew 24, which is an extended version of Mark 13. If this is really confusing, Matthew 24, it does help a little bit. It's a longer, um, Matthew includes more of what Jesus said, so it does help fill in the blanks a little bit more. And you can draw pretty strong, I think, pretty pretty clear connections between Matthew 13 and Mark 24 and between the book of Revelation, which was written after the temple was destroyed. And you get this picture again of there, some of these things, they're just the cycles of living on the earth. And then some of these things are also looking forward to that kind of that final day. You can see the destruction of Jerusalem, or excuse me, the destruction of the temple and the events leading up to it as uh, a, a small scale or a miniature version of Jesus' return in the days leading up to it. And by days, I mean time period, not literal 24-hour days. Some of these cycles are just repeated. They are, they are intensified, and you see that in Revelation. It's the same cycles that are being repeated. They just get more and more intense as we approach the time when Jesus will return. So it's not necessarily that it's new stuff that's happening. The, 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 the language is highly metaphorical. It's almost all rooted in Old Testament prophecy. The better you know the Old Testament, the the better you'll understand Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Revelation. But it's, it's not new stuff. It's the same stuff oftentimes felt more intensely by more people. And so when Jesus is talking about, hey, when this happens, and the temple's about to be destroyed. When you see this, and you can read it in Luke, he talks about the sign explicitly about when, when the city is encircled by the enemy. That's what happened when, they, when the Romans seized, uh, excuse me, seized uh, laid siege to Jerusalem. You're you going to get out of there. It's going to be horrible when you see that starting to happen. And again, it was horrible, and he talks about how difficult it was, how quickly people need to leave. You just need to go. Don't get your jacket. Don't get your coat. If you're pregnant or you're nursing, it's going to be really hard. It's hard for you to travel when that's happening, but but you got to do it because it's going to be really bad. And then he talks about uh, this time of distress. That's the word tribulation. It's going to be really bad for the people who are experiencing, and you can see him kind of leaning towards his return in what we call the great tribulation, the worst period of time. For God's people to live in this period of time was horrible. If you lived in it, it was the worst time for you, for sure. And if anyone experiences a great tribulation, that's going to be the worst time for us to be alive as followers of Jesus in terms of the persecution that will be experienced. There are people who are experiencing a taste of that right now, just not in the United States. And then Jesus gets even more cryptic and he starts talking about these cosmic signs And we don't know what that means. What does it mean for the sun to turn black? Is that an eclipse? Obviously, if the sun is turned off, we have like eight minutes of life left or something. We're done at that point. So what exactly is he talking about? And again, there's there's not a a great answer. There's just going to be these signs, cosmic signs that indicate, hey, the end is coming. At this point, I think he's talking almost exclusively about the second coming when he starts talking about these cosmic signs and then his return and the gathering together of his people. And all that happens after this period of distress. So again, not, not the most helpful explanations there from him. The disciples are saying, when is this going to happen and what are the signs? And the closest thing we have to signs are, well, the gospel will be preached to all nations That's not explicitly defined. What exactly does that mean? You saw on the slide from Acts, at the end of Acts, the the assumption or kind of the the, 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 uh, implied statement is mission accomplished. Like we've done that. It was the known world at that time. So, what does that mean for us now? That word nation doesn't mean political um, countries the way we think about it. It's a people group, and we don't even, we can't even agree on how many of those are. Somewhere between, 12,000 and 16,000 depending on how you add them up and 40% of those haven't been reached. Somewhere between 6500 and 7500 of those people groups haven't been reached. What does it mean to reach one of them? Every person in that people group, one person from that people group hears the gospel. What about the fact that people are born every day? Like how do we it, again it becomes tricky to even see that as a sign? The gospel preached to all nations. Another sign, the abomination that causes desolation. What, 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 we don't even know how to begin to understand that. And how, does that, how is that a sign for us? Then we have these cosmic signs. Those are the things that Jesus gives, which again, are not, they're not what we're wanting. Like we, we want a date on a calendar and some clear and concrete and tangible things that we can hang our hat on. And He doesn't give us any of that. This is what he gives us here at the end. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you'll know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you'll know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You don't know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Watch. So Jesus closes this answer to his disciples. He's speaking, I think at this point, he breaks out the two. About the destruction of the temple, he says, it's gonna happen before your generation dies. And Jewish understanding a generation is about 40 years and that's that's when it happened, about 40 years from when Jesus said that. About the destruction of the temple, these things, they're gonna happen before y'all, before your generation dies. And then he changes and says, but about my return, I don't even know. I don't even know when that's going to happen. He's talking about two different things. If he can give him a time on one before this generation dies, and then the next, time, next breath, he says, and I don't know when I'm going to return. To me, it's obvious he's talking about two different events. About the destruction of Jerusalem, you guys are going to be alive to see that. About my return, I don't know when that's going to be, and neither do y'all. As you read through the New Testament, you'll see this shift over time. Initially, everybody expects Jesus to come back within their lifetime. And it's only towards the end of the New Testament. I don't mean towards it like, Revelation end. I mean the time in which the books are written. You start to see this encouragement from Paul and from the other guys who are writing to say, listen, you've got to live. You can't, you're, not, you're not just staring up at heaven every day, seeing if today's the day that Jesus returns. And if we read, particularly in Matthew, there are parables about a delay that begin to become really important for us as the church. And I think that's, that's the thing that I want us to hear. We can, we can push aside all of the, the details, not, not necessarily because they're not important, but to me, they're not, they're not super helpful for what we're supposed to do. And so I, I blew through that. If we wanted to dig into all, it would take weeks for us to dig into all that's there In chapter 13, all of the symbolism, all of the Old Testament imagery, all of the possibilities for what it can mean. If that's something that really excites you, then I I can give you some resources. The thing I wanted us to hear most are these two words that Jesus repeats repeatedly in chapter 13. And they're, they're the two most important words for us. It doesn't matter if you know what the abomination that causes desolation is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you can list all of the birth pains doesn't matter if you know what it means for the sun to turn dark. That doesn't matter. What matters is, are you, am I, watching out, and are we keeping watch? Those are the two commands that are repeated throughout. To, to watch out. Your, your Bible, my Bible, the NIV, it translates it mostly as be on your guard. Beware. What? that we're not deceived. The two primary things we need to be on our guard against are deception and falling away during difficulty. Those are the two things that Jesus says, y'all got, you've got to be on your guard. You've got to watch out for this. You've got to make sure that you're not deceived by false messiahs. Again, in our mind, we think, well, we're not gonna, if somebody started walking down the street saying, I'm Jesus, we would, none of us are following that person. 2 Corinthians 12 says the enemy masquerades as an angel of light, and we need to give him enough credit to acknowledge he's really good at what he does. He's the father of lies, Jesus says. When he lies, he's speaking his native language. He's really good at lying, at deceiving, at laying traps that pull us away from Jesus. And we need to be honest enough with ourselves to say, where, where am I weak? Where am I prone to being deceived. We talked about this last week when we talked about money and giving. You can't serve God and money. One of the primary tools that the enemy uses to deceive us is mammon or money with a capital M. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. I'll give you security. You just need more of me and you need to hold on to what you have. That's deception. What are the areas for you, for me, where I'm prone to being deceived? What about this whole idea of I need to be on my guard. If difficulty comes, are my roots deep enough to withstand trouble? Particularly trouble that comes because of my relationship with Jesus. In the parable of the soils, it's that second type of soil, the, the rocky soil. Receives the gospel with joy. Springs up quickly. is what it's, That's the plant metaphor. Receives the gospel with joy. But when trouble comes... The roots can't, they're not deep enough. The soil is shallow, it's rocky. So that plant withers and dies. We don't want to be that plant. Are your roots or my roots deep enough in the Lord that when trouble comes, particularly trouble because of my relationship with him, that I'll persevere, that I'm not gonna quit? When I think about both of those things, are we equipping ourselves Jesus, again, he's, he's very clear. This, this is the, I don't want to say it's the most important, very important. It's placement in the book of Mark. This is his last, really his last word. He's leaving the temple and he's saying to his disciples and he says, I'm telling everyone, like y'all have got to get this. And again, all of the signs, I don't think that's what he's saying we've got to get. And we tend to focus on that stuff. It's sensational. And honestly, it doesn't affect us. We don't have to do anything. You're not the antichrist and I'm not either. And so it's something that we can, that's just interesting to talk about. It doesn't necessarily press on us in terms of growth. It doesn't require anything of us in terms of obedience. The things that Jesus is saying are most important. Again, the number of times in that one sermon, he says, be on your guard. We need to listen I've told y'all before I was a bank teller when I was 18 and 19 and on counterfeit money day, I was nervous because they said, it's your job. I'm 18. It's my job to, to determine. I was like, I thought that was a secret services job. How is that my job to, to figure out what counterfeit money is? And so when we get there, I'm thinking, all right, I got, it's back in the day when people had notebooks and not laptops and I was going to write down, all right, how am I supposed to know? And they don't tell us any of the scams. None. They just give us real money. And say, if you know what this feels like, then you'll never ever think, you'll you'll be able to tell as soon as you touch a counterfeit bill. They can't reproduce the paper. As long as you know what real money feels like. That is your best defense against counterfeit. And the same thing is true for us. If we know the truth, capital T, you don't have to know every single scheme. You don't have to know every single lie. You don't have to know every single heresy. If you know the truth, when you hear one of those things, it won't sit right. When you experience one of those things, it's, gonna, it's not going to settle for you. Do you know the truth? Capital T. Not just intellectually, but experientially. Jesus is the truth. Do you know him? If you don't, it doesn't matter how smart you are. doesn't matter how moral you are. You are primed to be deceived he is the truth we need to know him when i think about that idea of standing firm he who stands firm to the end will be saved do you have the roots do i have the roots to do that are my roots in him deep enough or am i that shallow rocky soil and that's a hard thing to admit and most of us don't know because we're not we're not squeezed we don't experience trouble and difficulty because of our relationship with Jesus. And so maybe we think our roots are deeper than they are. And the only thing I know to do about that is to say, well, I'm going to go ahead. I, I, I want to I, I keep growing. I want my roots in him to be deep enough. And I don't even know what that means. But I don't want to be complacent about that. Not from a fearful way, but again, it's that whole idea of knowing him. That's the answer to both of those Pieces, Well I think about ongoing relationship with Jesus, discipline and desire, we need both of those things. Those result in deeper roots in us knowing the truth, capital T, experientially, not just intellectually. Discipline, that's, that's, a, that's a commitment to ongoing relationship even when you don't feel like it. And there are going to be times that you don't feel like it, just like there are times in every ongoing relationship that you have that you don't feel like being around the person. Do you have a commitment to say, I'm, I'm here. This is, this is the way. It sounds so mechanical. This is, my, this is the structure for me. This is what it looks like for me to put myself in a position to hear from you, to get to know you better. I read the Bible and this is, this is the way I do it. You know, I read a chapter a day or I'm, I'm on this reading plan from the Bible app or whatever. I show up at church and I engage in worship. I pray even when I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I commit to consistency, which for some of us, that's, that's a hard thing to do. For others, others we're routine people. they not hard at all. We flip the switch, but discipline without desire, it's cold and impersonal. It's just here. It's never here. That's not knowing the truth, and that's not deep roots. So we do need the desire, the want to, the, the passion. If discipline is a riverbed, desire is the water, and you need both. Desire without discipline, it's, though it's just, it's just fickle, which, again, is how some of us are in our relationship with the Lord. We run hot and cold, which is better than not running at all but it doesn't necessarily develop those deep roots. It doesn't help us know the truth to the depth that we need to so that we're not led astray. Again, we don't want to give the enemy more credit than he deserves, but I think we do want to acknowledge he's really good at deceiving. That's his thing. He's a great liar. Not to make us scared, just to make us aware. All right, real quick. Um, The second thing, so that's, that's, Keep watch, and that second word, and we'll just blow through this really quickly. I want you to read Matthew twenty-five, one through thirty, if you have a chance this week. Uh, is we want to watch out? It's not the same word. It's similar, but it's not the same. When th- this word "watch out," uh, excuse me, "keep watch" is really about uh, manning your post or being diligent, being prepared. Again, Matthew 24 is a fuller explanation of Mark 13. It's it's a longer sermon. And there's this line towards the end of Matthew 24 where Jesus is talking about this parable that we saw at the end of Mark 13. This idea of, you know, if if an owner leaves and he puts people in charge and then he comes back, how's his house going to be when he comes back? And he says, who is the faithful And the wise servant. Those are the two words. So when you're thinking about keeping watch, those are the two words. What does it mean to be faithful and what does it mean to be wise? And then in Matthew 25, Jesus gives two parables. One about being wise and one about being faithful. He's giving us a picture. Here's what it means. I'm looking for faithful and wise servants. And so let me paint a picture around what I mean by wise and what I mean by faithful. The parable of the bridesmaids, that's a a, a parable about being wise. That's the word that he uses. Five were foolish and five were wise. What made the five wise? They had enough oil to persevere, to wait through the delay for the groom to come. Again, it's a parable about a Jewish wedding and you have bridesmaids and part of their job is to light the way. The groom comes late. Five of them don't have enough oil for the delay and five do. The foolish ones don't, the wise ones do. And so Jesus is saying to us, do you have, again, it's that idea of, of roots. Do you have a relationship with me that's strong enough to persevere? You're gonna have to wait for my return. It's being delayed. At this point, it's been 2000 years. Do you have enough oil to wait? And then he tells a parable about Talents. A man who's rich gives money to three of his servants, five, two, and one talent. He's gone for a long time and he comes back and says, what'd y'all do while I was gone? Two guys invested their talents and they got a return and they are rewarded. And one guy buried his talent. And he just gives it back to the master without any, no increase. And he's judged harshly, punished. Jesus says, be faithful, well done, good and faithful servant. That's that word in that parable. I'm looking for wise and faithful servants, wise like these five bridesmaids who have enough oil, faithful like these two servants who invested what I gave them while I was gone. To be faithful is to be a good steward. It's to take advantage not just of the time during Jesus' delay, but also of everything that he's given us to further his kingdom. So when we're thinking about watching out, that's, in a sense, can feel a bit more defensive I wanna be on my guard. I don't wanna be deceived and I don't want to to fail when I'm persecuted. I don't wanna disown Jesus. And so I wanna know him. I wanna know him. And that's gonna help me recognize a lie because I know the truth and that's gonna deepen my roots as I know him better. So I'll be able to stand in the face of persecution. And when I'm thinking about keeping watch, all right, what's my post? What is Jesus asking of me during this interval between when he left and when he came back? And so far, everybody who's ever followed him is is still waiting. He hasn't returned. So every generation has been in that position. I wanna be like one of those five wise bridesmaids. I wanna have enough oil to persevere through my whole life. I wanna be like those two faithful bridesmaids. Stewards, two faithful servants who invest what God has given me and take advantage of the time before He returns. That's what I want to be like. I want to, again, keep watch. I want to do my job. I want to be diligent. Maybe those are two words that you can think about. Be vigilant. I want to watch out. I want to be diligent. I want to keep watch. That's a lot for one morning, it's, it's too many things to try to work through. You can't focus on all of that at once. And so as we close, I just want you, if you close your eyes, I just want you thinking about this. The first question, which is the most important question, is the classic kind of evangelistic question. If Jesus were to return, are you ready? If he came back tonight, if he were to gather his elect... Is he gathering you? That's nothing, that's not manipulation doesn't last. That's just a, that's an honest question. In your own heart, would you say, if Jesus was gathering his elect, I'd be a part of that group. And it's not because you're a good person and it's not because you go to church. It's not because you were raised in a Christian home. It's not because you were baptized. It's because you're placing your faith and your trust in him. we're living in this period of delay it's birth pains that's what's happening there're going to be wars and rumors of wars don't get thrown off by that there's going to be earthquakes and famines you're going to be persecuted the church at least will be but the gospel will continue to go forward there's going to be false prophets false messiahs people who are claiming all kinds of things at some point there's going to be these more concrete signs and we'll just trust that the Lord will make those plain to us. That's nothing we need to spend any time speculating. You don't, again, we don't need to speculate on who the Antichrist is. Or we don't, there's, not, there's no fruit in that. What we want to do this morning, am I? Are you? my watching out. So if you're willing, just ask the Holy Spirit is there a place right now where I'm either actively being deceived by the enemy or where I'm vulnerable to deception. We want to watch out because trouble will come. That's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, uh, I, I want roots that are deep in Jesus. I don't want to wither and die when trouble comes. For some of you, it's God, would you give me grace to be disciplined in seeking you? For some of you, it's God, would you stir up within me a deeper hunger and thirst for you? during this time of delay, all of these things, birth pains are happening. God, I want to be a faithful and wise servant. I want to keep watch. I want to be awake and alert. I want to be wise. Holy Spirit, would you show me if there's any place where I'm being foolish Where I'm not preparing myself for the, as Eugene Peterson calls it, for this long obedience in the same direction. God, I want to be faithful. I don't want to waste the time. I don't want to waste the talents. I don't want to waste the gifts. I don't want to waste the opportunities. Would you speak to me? Would you show me, Holy Spirit, is there a place where I'm burying the things that you've given to me? Where I'm not using them to further your purposes? God, I pray for all of us. This can be overwhelming. I pray nobody would feel that. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would bring clarity to each of our hearts and to each of our minds, that we would have a very clear sense of what you're saying to us and what obedience looks like? What's a faithful response to Mark 13? I pray for people maybe who can be prone to fear that this would, thinking about the future would not cause anxiety and worry and fear but there would be this deep sense of peace that you you are returning and you're going to make all things right and until you return you've got us And nothing can snatch us from your hand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week.